This is Dr. Todd May for the podcast series, Living Philosophy, brought to you by philosophytoyou.com. Living Philosophy explores the way people have brought philosophy to life through significant experiences, changes, practices, and life-affirming realizations. My guest for this episode is Sam Holden, who was a professional poker player and now publican. In his first year of professional competition, Sam reached the 2011 World Series of Poker main event, where he finished eighth overall. Later that year, he beat out 32 other players to become the champion of Channel 4's late night poker in Britain. Once dubbed the Brit with the Midas Touch, Sam was the last British player standing in the 2012 World Series of Poker main event, finishing 55th overall. In addition to acting as an ambassador for Triple Eight Poker, Sam has more recently become the new owner of the Monument Pub in Canterbury, UK, his hometown. But Sam is not just about poker. He has a BSc in Forensic Science, as well as a BA and MA in Philosophy. Welcome to Living Philosophy, Sam. It is a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you very much, Todd. Thanks for having me. So poker and philosophy. You once remarked that the two have a lot in common, and certainly the more formalistic side of philosophy dealing with mathematics and probabilities fits well with poker playing. But from a more humanistic angle, what is it about poker that caught your attention? Well, I suppose, you know, I should mention that I came to, to poker first and then philosophy later. So it was really sort of in hindsight, I realized how much they had in common. And for me, I guess one of the biggest things is, well, it's, it's a game of reasoning, essentially. And, uh, you know, it's a reasoning puzzle with kind of incomplete information. Yeah, you know, if, if, if you're you're trying to kind of read someone um and I, by that i don't mean sort of kind of physical tells necessarily that might be a little part of it but it's often more sort of their playing style or something like that you really kind of it's a very kind of inaccurate kind of science um and uh you're really trying to just gather as much information as you can to put into this reasoning problem to come to some kind of conclusion of what you need to do in terms of usually fold or raise or or uh, call and to me, somehow that was a bit like, a bit like philosophy. So you know, you've got a, a lot of premises, and you need to work out how they uh, they intertwine and and see, yeah, see what your conclusion is at the end of the problem. Is this something you came to quite naturally because you you first started playing poker when you were an undergraduate student, um, and I'm assuming that you were playing with friends, and then you realize, well, I keep on beating my friends, uh, and maybe this is a way I could possibly get through university without having to take a job and have, have a fun time with it. Is that something like how it went? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was just my hobby at university. You know, I, it was something I was passionate about. I think a lot of people during that time all sort of single out one, you know, sport or hobby or something that they really spend a lot of time on, um, you know, a club or society. And for me, that was poker and there was a poker society at university and I made lots of good friends through it and we played a lot and you know a lot of us would take it relatively seriously you know you we, we would play we wouldn't drink or anything like that like sometimes we might but like often it was you know just just really kind of playing as well as we could and and, and talking about the game a lot and I think I just then took it a bit more seriously than others and I started um, using online resources to sort of just try and get better and better and um yeah yeah so it went from there and um yeah it's about halfway through 
that undergraduate when I was about 19 or 20 it sort of became my part-time job and I stopped working in the pub that I was working <laughs> um, and you know it was a good moment when I realized I could use it to sort of buy Christmas presents and then not have to work in the pub over Christmas <laughs> and I could do that instead. And is playing poker this sort of game where the more you are exposed to different kinds of players, the better you get? Or is there a way you can sort of be a home, hermit per, poker player and just sort of live in your own world and whatever whatever world that might be, whatever, it's like a beautiful mind and you're really good with probabilities <laughs> and statistics. Or um, it seems like for someone like me, who's not good at that kind of thing, it, it would have to be, I'd have to be exposed to more strategies that people use and the, the styles that they play to, to feel comfortable with, with what I was doing. Well, I think the main thing to be exposed to is other people to talk about poker and to talk about strategy and, and just like philosophy, like if you're doing it on your own and not bouncing ideas off someone, it's it's so much harder. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, so particularly when I was doing it and I guess still now, um, you know, we came from like an online poker background um, as well as sort of playing at university. So it was a lot of kind of computer game like maths geeks kind of thing and I was kind of one of those um so a lot of people did you know kind of fulfill that stereotype and spent a lot of time in their kind of bedrooms or whatever but they were constantly discussing poker online and there were forums um on a publishing site funnily enough called um two plus two which around that time was you know you had all the best poker players in the world pretty much just sharing ideas and trying to kind of solve these problems and kind of it seems weird now I think look back on it because a lot of these people will be playing against each other sometimes but also they'd be playing against a lot of kind of amateur players that weren't taking it as seriously as as we were so so yeah it's that there's something about that kind of yeah social problem solving which is is really important. You, you sort of hinted at this that having these social platforms where you can brainstorm and problem solve, it must come very close to giving up secrets about how and strategies about how one wants to play. So is there a fine line between that? Can you give an example that stands out in your mind about where there was a breakthrough in the social forum? And then, you know, the flip side of it is, I wonder how many other people are going to be aware of this next time I'm playing poker uh, and I'm coming across someone who might be thinking the same thing in relation to the problem that might've been solved and, and within the social platform. I think the thing to remember with um, particularly the type of poker I played, which was tournaments, so like large tournaments with thousands of people in, you wouldn't necessarily be coming across the same people very often. So it was very easy for everyone to realise that we're going to gain far more here by sort of sharing ideas. And ultimately, particularly at that time, so this is sort of 2011, the tournaments themselves are basically funded by amateur players um, at every level. So they're the ones kind of bringing the value and then the best players would play quite similarly. There's definitely, you know, changes in style and that would change the, the kind of variables within the problem, but the problem itself would still be the same. You're still trying to kind of make a logical deduction of whether you should, you know, raise or call or... So, so yeah, I mean, it really was quite a generous, um, generous uh, community, I suppose. You mentioned styles of playing. That seems to be one of the main things that you focus on uh, by virtue of how frequently you mentioned it. So I imagine there's 
styles of playing. Uh, you also mentioned reading gestures, which I think everybody knows about because it's any movie rendition of of poker. It's always about tell signs, and that's what's going to be the climactic point in a poker match is whether or not a tell sign is is true or not. And the other course that we talked about with philosophy is going to be probabilities. Um, so I don't know if you had other ideas relating to philosophy but to broaden these ideas about styles of playing uh, and how to read certain styles. I guess it's not just gestures; it's knowing. Um, the art of another player, uh, what they is it what they tend to do in certain certain situations, or uh, is it like chess that there are certain moves that good poker players are aware of that they're probably going to try? Often, you know, better players would play in a pretty similar way, um, and in some ways that makes people quite easy to read. But if you're playing well, then you kind of balance your kind of bluffs with your. Um, with your, you know, strong hands, your value hands. Um, so really, I think that what's really more interesting and like, again, particularly kind of the type of poker I would play and when I played, it's kind of working out how an amateur player was playing um, and working out kind of maybe what their weaknesses are, um, but also their tendencies, their personality. The most interesting part of a poker tournament is the final table, right? So you're getting you've been playing for hours and hours, right? Some of the tournaments I would play would be sort of eight, 10, 12 hours online. And then you're finally at that, the, the final table. And that's where most of the money is. So suddenly things change and suddenly there's a lot more emotion involved. There's a lot more adrenaline. Um, there's a lot more at stake. Then you start to see kind of, I think a, a larger kind of maybe a differential between the way different players play, which I think is is pretty interesting. I think from from an epistemology point of view, what's really interesting there is like how much sort of credence you give these reads. So again, like the tells thing, like they really are minimal. Like it's just really hard to look at someone <laughs> and kind of make a, a a judgment that's really definitive. But often there'll be small things, um, you know, uh, particularly in those high stress moments. And then it's how much weight do you give that in combined with how you're also looking at this problem from a very mathematical way. Yeah, so when studying philosophy, the work on sort of credences and, and, and credences within, you know, within belief or knowledge really interests me. I think basically knowledge is a bit overrated sometimes. I think a lot of the time we're kind of making our best guess at what we think is right and that's fine and we shouldn't we shouldn't neglect that and we shouldn't be going for such a black and white approach in life and this is kind of, this is a kind of living philosophy thing really because I think it really helps because if you're just trying to be certain about everything then you're never going to get very far and maybe you cause yourself more pain because of it because you're waiting to be certain so the things I'm thinking about are like whether you should go to university or which university you should go to or like whether you should live in California or Canterbury or <laughs> whether um you know uh, uh whether you should have a child whether you should get married all of these things you're never going to be 100% on these things but you've got to kind of yeah make a decision based on the information you have and this is where there's this yeah kind of balance between yeah kind of probability and, and a kind of more humanistic side as you said earlier and and you you've got to kind of combine the two and and also this is kind of going to bring up another big area of philosophy is that this is where you kind of introduce luck as well into into life 
I think an ideal way of sort of um, reasoning in life is to say, well, you know, I'm 75% sure that this is the right thing to do, given the kind of the cost or um, benefit within this problem. That's good enough. You know, I should act on it. But actually, I was wrong or situation changed. And but that's just bad luck. You know, there's nothing you can do about that. You've done everything you can in your power. You've kind of performed optimally. Um, and then I think like mental health wise, it really helps to then sort of get on with life a bit <laughs> just be a, and try and deal with the adversity. I should mention for the sake of our audience members who are not familiar with some of the philosophical terms we're using, that uh, epistemology is the branch of philosophy concerned with knowledge or basically what knowledge is, for example. A typical account of knowledge is that it is formed of beliefs that are true. And when we have enough beliefs about a particular thing or area that are true, then we reach this holy grail called certainty, or perhaps even uh, knowledge that is often termed by some philosophers as being incorrigible. How we determine what beliefs are true is a vexed question for philosophers. So when Sam mentions the term credence, it is the idea that if we can't really have certain knowledge or know what beliefs are absolutely true, we can give specific levels of credence to such beliefs. High credence, for example, means you have a high degree of confidence that the belief in question is true. I hope that uh, is more or less uh, an accurate account of a, a general picture of what's going on with epistemology. So with poker, it becomes quite interesting because it's very much, as you're describing, it's very much unlike the Hollywood depiction of it, that there's so much going on uh, below the surface. There's That there's not much of a, I guess the way I would put it is there's not much of a manifestation of things happening on 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 the face of it and that there's all these other calculations and processes of reasoning going on. And with Aristotle, he is an interesting phrase. I, I think I've, this is the second or third podcast now where I've mentioned Aristotle and, and these <laughs> kinds of throwaway phrases, but uh, there's a great throwaway phrase from Aristotle and I'm not quite sure exactly what it means. I, I think my credence level is pretty high in, the, in my interpretation, but he says techne loves tuke and techne is a certain kind of reasoning that has to do with probabilities um, and techniques. Uh, it's the Greek uh, root for the, the English technology. It's a kind of instrumental rationality. It's a means ends uh, reasoning. And then tuke is the Greek word for luck. And I think Aristotle in mentioning this is not saying that techne is the antidote to luck. In other words, it's not the way that we can get control of fortune. I think he's, he's making an observation and being somewhat uh, facetious saying that in trying to control luck, we tend to revert to techniques that we think will work. And that's why techne loves tuke. The two go hand in hand together. But Aristotle comments elsewhere that it's there's not much you can do with fortune, especially fortune that, that relates to our own moral well-being. And that part of the idea of, of a moral philosophy is to, to develop one's character such that it can cope with and handle uh, misfortune or um, when things go poorly. And although the idea is that things shouldn't go poorly, certainly they are. So I'm just wondering when things went really bad for you in a poker match, um, did you have any character resources that you were deliberately drawing on to overcome it? Or was it just something you would walk away from? Because usually with me, I'd like to think about, I can handle some things very well, but a lot of times I don't, I just have to leave because I know if, um, if uh, I stay there much longer, uh, the very ugly side of me will come out 
and uh, won't, won't look very good within a public space. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be a, a case of kind of focusing on, on, yeah, what you can control and then, yeah, realizing that there's, there's other things that you can't. And, and that's, for me, absolutely what poker is all about is making the decisions you know just as well as you can um but realizing that ultimately there's a um, deck of cards which is is going to kind of often dictate what really happens um but then the really difficult thing comes afterwards is kind of analyzing like if you have a really bad focus session it's analyzing well have I played badly there or have I just been unlucky and um there's a lot of things that I find quite just about poker and maybe just is the wrong word here but there's there's it requires a certain level of kind of humility to sort of identify when you have played badly because it's very easy to what I would say post-rationalize so like after the event to just say well I've lost but remember all of these hands where I was really unlucky um and then therefore just decide oh I've just been unlucky but like you're never going to improve like that and maybe you've been unlucky but you've also played the hand terribly or like you know there's there's other situations where you've played played really badly um and then also people would sort of post-rationalize and forget the times they've been lucky even even in a bad session or something like that yeah just trying to be as honest as possible but it's really difficult because also then on the flip side if you have a really good session people will just think that they're the best poker player in the world and that's just nonsense and um some of my favorite sessions would be where I maybe win a tournament but realize that I haven't actually played very well I've just been quite lucky and vice versa actually like a kind of bad session but you're actually really content with how you've played you've made really good decisions um you know that just happens sometimes and you can kind of know that in the long run that that'll that'll improve it's yeah it's difficult to do that (laughs) do you see poker then as most people when they think of poker think at gambling addiction uh Mm. drugs uh prostitutes in las vegas behind the table again these hollywood depictions of what goes on poker but from the way you're describing it, it sounds like poker can be a character developing exercise or practice is that something that you believe or is it something that you um, didn't realize until after you decided to start looking into philosophy? Or is it something that philosophy confirmed for you? Or would you say to the audience members, don't ever play poker? It took me down the wrong road. I mean, I think that poker is closer to chess than it is to roulette. And it gets kind of swept along in the casino industry for obvious reasons. That is part of casino culture and, and, and things like that. And, you know, if someone was winning money playing chess, you would just be in awe, right? You know, it's just, that would be so cool and impressive. And it is impressive. Um, I would say, though, there are different forms of poker and that some are more gambly than others. Some require less discipline. Some are more addictive. Um, unfortunately, there's a tendency now for poker sites to create these products, like invent new games that are just sort of, short sharp hits which is really sad um because often yeah often when i was playing you know poker was relatively detached from from that uh i feel like i'm i'm being naive now but like i think more so than it is now 
And um, so certainly, like, if you're looking at a kind of a long poker session of eight hours and, like, you know, a tournament that takes so much discipline and patience, I think that just there are a, a lot of kind of qualities there. And then the strategy side of it is, it, you know, it's, it's a real kind of mental exercise. And as I said, it was pretty healthy for me at uni. It had a kind of social aspect. Um, we were playing against friends. No one was like, we, you know, wouldn't play for more than like five pounds. Um, we could afford that. And, um, and you know, we were going there instead of going to the pub and probably spending 20 quid in the pub and drinking loads of alcohol. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it really does depend. But, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's something I'd recommend. I mean, I so there's another really good memory I have because this was all quite a long time ago now. But, like, so 2017, I went to uni. And then I was sort of started a part-time job. But I'd just be playing for free, you know, just playing online um for play money or like for the free rolls where you could win like 50 cents or something and uh, just really enjoying it and just enjoying the puzzle and it was just my my computer game at that point you know it sounds like there's something about the relationship to the intention to play a game like poker and the kind of time investment that comes with it because if one's only interested in kind of a lottery mentality where they want to just have quick hits and try to up their probability um, to win at something. Um, I, know, I know different, I have friends who, who play online games and they have different strategies about how, how frequently you pay, play or do something. Uh, so there's something about that. And then the relationship to having more substantial, more uh, meaningful, I suppose, relationships to to goals not just winning money or just winning but you've mentioned things about obviously the the development of the social community that kind of camaraderie and fellowship that results from it uh, and also the kind of investment not just the money investment that goes in but the time investment so when you're doing these long poker tournaments you're bringing a lot to it besides just whatever the entrance fee is or how much you're going to lose or win at the end i'm thinking because another uh game came up in my mind as you were talking about it, and that was that's tennis and i don't play tennis mm -hmm. but i'm often very impressed when watching these tennis matches at you know the on wimbledon uh, or the uh you know the the grand slam tour all these events at how long these athletes actually have to be committed not just to playing a you know one match or a point whatever it might be but it, this is going to go on and on and back and forth and that really comes out when what is it it's match point it's just going back and forth uh, and it's, you think, oh my God, you, how, how long do you have to hold it together uh, in order yeah. to, to see it through? And it it is, of course, winning, but there's also something else being tested and being rewarded at the same time. I don't know if in your own experience, um, you, you talk about having fun, but is there anything that stands out explicitly or vividly in your mind where you realize you had an aha moment about some some kind of moment of self-discovery. I don't mean to sound too American about this, but um, some kind of moment of self-discovery or self-development that that emerged as a result of you playing poker for so long. This this links into to things you were saying. And for all of the, the things that I love about poker, um, the thing that most resonates when you ask a question like that was actually when I decided to stop playing poker. And that was like quite an easy decision. And, um, you know, I'd played so much for so long um, this is opening up different avenues of philosophy now, but um, it is ultimately just a game. <laughs> and although there are these kind of um, attributes that we might think are kind of impressive or useful, still ultimately like my 
life was playing a game <laughs> and uh, that that began to be less fulfilling once I had kind of some success and uh, had the financial security that I suppose I'd been been looking for so that was and then you know in in terms of kind of addiction or something like that is something I was always like very aware of and I get asked about that kind of thing all the time but the day I decided you know I decided oh I, I'm done with this well this is was basically when I was accepted for the philosophy degree I just sort of messaged my uh, the people I was working for for representing the site said I think I've had enough and um and just didn't play for six months you know <laughs> just like wasn't wasn't as interested anymore I mean ultimately at that point yeah I was I was a bit kind of bored because it, it is just a strategy puzzle <laughs> and there's more to life than that and I wanted to start looking forward but um I don't know how much that that answers your question but for me also you know my experience playing poker was also such an existential experience of realizing that the kind of world is a bit absurd and the the kind of the credit that I was getting for playing a card game quite well wasn't justified um partly due to luck um partly due to playing a card game just isn't very important and then friends you know the nurse isn't my mind, it was obvious to me that my friends that were nurses and midwives, you know, deserved more praise than I did and they weren't getting it, <laughs> you know, not in the same way. And um, then you start to realise how how absurd the world is, but it's a very privileged perspective to have. I guess, yeah, it, it becomes kind of uncomfortable and it became evident to me how much luck played a role in kind of how well I did. And I don't mean just literally in poker so you know I can talk about that quite quite specifically and before I did really well in Vegas I was still making a really good living at poker I'd kind of finished my degree and I wanted to do it for a year but had had I not done as well as I did in Vegas I probably would have still carried on because it was going well I was certainly earning more than I would have done in in any other kind of job at that point and you know I was enjoying it as well but then I had this like kind of big break, which kind of led to kind of sponsorship and um, and things like that. So so immediately people were kind of assuming that I was better than I was. You know, I was, I was a professional poker player, but like, <laughs> apart from that, it was really frustrating how people didn't quite understand how I guess how poker poker worked. Because um, why why would they? I suppose. But um, and then. And then also, like, there's just a huge amount of luck into getting to that position in terms of as it's often a kind of very kind of middle class opportunity because you kind of want to earn some money. So you're willing to work at it quite a lot, but you've got plenty of time to do it. Right. Had I been working 20 hours a week while studying that that first degree, then there's no way I would have become a professional poker player. I also had a family that would have supported me like had that not gone well for some reason um you know just all of this stuff about taking shots you know being yeah just being at university knowing that that could then go back to do a master's if I wanted to or something like that so all of it was just like just hugely fortunate I felt it felt like it should have made me happier than it did like I think I expected all those things to make me happy I vividly remember uh being in my hotel room on sort of day two three of like the the World Series Pokemon event that I did really well on. I'm just thinking in my room, well, if I just make it to the final nine, 
which I ended up doing, like that will set me up. Like I don't, you know, I don't I'm not trying to be super, super wealthy, but you know, that's that'll be so much security. I'll be sorted then. And then it happened. And then I was like, and I sort of, yeah, and just had that security. And then actually I thought, oh, the way my life's going at the moment, I was actually happier when I was skin you know, as a student, um drinking with the spoons or whatever, you know, like so yeah, it's that kind of realization, which is just hugely privileged. Now that you mentioned earlier about you know, kind of strive for the kind of next um boundary of wealth or something like that. And it's all kind of wrapped up in in capitalism and com- um commercialization. But because it all happened so quickly to me. And it was like, well, well, this should change everything. <laughs> of course it doesn't. It's the kind of things that you, you imagine when you're 22 and growing up in in the world we do, I think. So, so part of the absurdity, uh, the existential term of absurdity is, is a real interesting one. And goes back to, as you know, it goes back to Albert Camus uh, for audience members who are not quite familiar with the notion of the absurd. What's very interesting about it is Camus Camus' idea is basically to say that when we attribute meaning to things, uh, that's when the absurdity happens. Because Camus' position is that there's the, the universe is ultimately silent, meaningless, and it's an act of our mental, cognitive, psychological capacities to project or identify things as having or carrying a kind of salience or meaning that's objective in some way. And so once you have that kind of relationship to things in the world, you create this fake universe or world in which these things seem to be working and they will work because if everyone buys into the same kinds, it's kind of like a Ponzi scheme and a pyramid scheme. If everyone's buying into it, everyone's investing time and money in it. And then it just takes one thing for that to snap or break. And it's to realize that those relations and attributes you believed in or had credence in dissolve, they fall away. And you realize that wasn't the thing. That world is is as a fake edifice of something else. And uh, Camus has a difficult time filling that void with something that is meaningful because he doesn't want to speak about meaning, but he does talk about other things like solidarity and rebellion, these kinds of things. And the more interesting novel that gets to that positive side of Camus probably oddly enough or ironically in our time of pandemic is is, uh, his novel called The Plague. So it sounds like um, there's this world of poker that was this strange simulacrum of substance. And then you were able to walk away from that. From, from, from Camus, one of the reasons I got into philosophy, I suppose, was kind of almost an anti-theist sort of skepticism of religion at first. Like I was really interested in philosophy of religion and then, you know, I've mellowed a bit since then, (laughs) but, um, uh, but it was that that sense of like where is the meaning in this 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 experience of life, and it's also something that I've I've seen you know most of my friends go through in their twenties, and it isn't until they, they kind of reach their thirties when they maybe a bit more comfortable with that, or that they realise what it is that they can derive meaning from if that's how they interpret it, or um, yeah, accepting that there is no meaning. Or studying existentialism at university it really helped me with that and I don't think I was really expecting that so existentialism is great therapy basically I think <laughs> um, at least it was for me and yeah so I guess through through that process yes yeah, so I was studying studying philosophy for a while and I did some work for Oxfam still just trying to work out how yeah I, I would I would wouldn't want to use the word meaning but 
yeah, how um, how I wanted to sort of flourish in life, if that isn't too cringy a word, but to be happy, I suppose. And um, yeah, so, uh, you know, my passion for, for philosophy was leading me down a road of potentially doing a, a PhD after my master's, but I think I realised I wasn't quite cut out for that, to be honest. <laughs> that would be uh, almost too hard, and I've got major respect for anyone that does it. But um, You've invested in a, a local pub called The Monument, which has an interesting background, because it used to be, as I understand, a football pub type of place, and then it became a vegan pub. And now, under your ownership, uh, what is... I guess, what is your your aspirations and goals for for the monument? What makes me happy is, is you know, things within the community, um, social experiences. Again, I guess just the view of like philosophy running through all of these decisions in terms of like finding a spot in a capitalist world where you feel like you have, um, you know, plenty of say in, in what's going on. And again, that's just hugely privileged situation, but. I'd like to think I can run a small business ethically and, um, uh, yeah, you know, work with good people and hopefully have good customers and and sort of earn a living from that, I guess. Um, and we'll see how it goes. But, um, yeah, so it's, I've got a big eye on the kind of community with, with this pub. Having it's, it, it's round the corner from where I've been living for the last seven years. And I'm also passionate about food and drink, and that makes me happy too. So <laughs> I don't really do uh, do clothes and stuff, but I like food. Is it too much to to offer this thought that um, from what you've said, social experience and social discussion, or these kinds of spaces in which people can come together and learn about learn from each other, learn about each other, and, and often do so uh, serendipitously, is that the kind of space you want to create in? your your pub uh, and I guess there's certain things certain ways to think about the business vision as it were and one is that by having good food good drink certain decor it actually creates the opportunity for these kinds of things to emerge whereas if you had slot machines or you know those gambling machines that you can have in, in pubs and so forth that's obviously going to create to give a stark example that's going to create a lot of different possibilities for that social space that is the pub. Is that ultimately something in the back of your mind? And um, if if it is, uh, have you had any interesting thoughts or radical thoughts about how you're going to transform the way the monument is operating? Yeah, so um, as you were speaking, it kind of, it reminded me of kind of Arendtian action. <laughs> so um, yeah, uh, action as, as Hannah Arendt would uh, or classified it in terms of yeah that kind of almost political discourse of that feels like yeah it's just productive and it, to me it's it's almost like studying philosophy without actually doing that PhD it's just being able to talk to people about ideas and yeah and and, and kind of discussing properly and not to in in not kind of like politicized way you can still talk about politics but not without you know without committing loads of fallacies and um, things like that. So, yeah, so we definitely want to try, try and create a comfortable space for, for people so to kind of share ideas. And... A pub focused on Hannah Rent's idea of action, which, <laughs> which of course, the, the main one is, is, is speaking and being able to tell one's mm -hmm. story and that we're, I'm just thinking off the top of my, and that we're all equal by virtue of our, our, our distinctness and distinctiveness and, um, that can only be appreciated and recognized when there's the real freedom to 
to do that. Not freedom in an American sense of I have the right to say whatever I want, but for, for rent, it'll be very Aristotelian in the sense that we have the real opportunity to articulate what we think when it matters and realize here's how it's not American. We realize that there's an immense responsibility and burden that comes with that ability to speak freely. And sorry if I've offended any audience members with that, but that's the one side of America, the, the concept, the popular conception of American freedom that that's missing is this responsibility to recognize and respect others um, with that freedom. And uh, the ethical side of it to the pub that you mentioned, that is that both how you run the business? I'm just thinking very broadly in terms of uh, perhaps new ways of hiring, of um, treating employees, but also as I recall, the Monument Pub was a was a vegetarian vegan pub. Is there is there that side to it? Are you also thinking about if the pub does well, you're going to invest in social socially responsible projects within the communities? Are all those things on the table? Almost. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not vegan at the moment, uh, nor vegetarian. Um, kind of have been in the past for brief periods and. I'm inclined to think that vegans are right. I just don't quite have the willpower at the moment. But um, that's exactly uh, me. I, I, I suffer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, obviously, uh, things will be ethically sourced, and there will be a a significant um, and like high quality um, vegan part of the menu because that's often often lacking in pubs. And then, yeah, I mean, ultimately, just you know, treating staff well in terms of paying them the genuine minimum, uh, sorry, the genuine um, living wage. Um, and um, and then just treating people kindly, I think. Business-wise, I'm in a slightly, yeah, again, slightly privileged position. I'm not trying to like make as much money as I can. It's just me. I'm going to be putting a lot of hours in myself. I think I've got a little bit more wiggle room than others would. And, you know, I'm not, not going to be paying rent to a brewery and things like that because, um, it will be a free house. So, um, you know, we'll see how it goes and then potentially looking at ideas of kind of profit sharing and things like that in the future, um, particularly with kind of more permanent members of staff. But yeah, it's kind of just trying to get away from the kind of automation of staff management that I kind of see a lot of, hear a lot of. Yeah, there'll be a few people listening to this thinking. Um, We'll see. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I hope I'm not corrupted by uh, by capitalism. Maybe I'll follow up with you in six months to see how things are going. And it'll be like a Shakespearean tragedy where uh, if you look at the soliloquies of the tragic character, you see their transformation in their mentality. I, I had a teacher who was brilliant with Shakespeare, and he just said, that's a real interesting way just to look at the play. Just look at the soliloquies and you see you see exactly how they've transformed. So maybe in six and 12 months later, you'll be, oh no, it's all about profit. Uh, and I, was, <laughs> I was also thinking from my own interest, uh, there's often conflicting views held by the same person about labor. And that is one, labor is a cost to business, which on the face of it, it does look like that because you pay a wage, but actually the wage is their produce because that's the labor they do. But um, so they seem as, as a cost uh, to the business. And in fact, if you took labor away, then you don't have any business. And that's where the problem with automation comes in at a certain level, because they're trying to replace the wage just by paying a certain expense up front and, and some upkeep 
uh, to reduce that. And then the, the the other conflicting aspect to that is the same person will see the employee they hire as a cost to their profit, but then they will see that employee as, especially if it's in the service industry, that employee has to make, has to upsell, has to be doing things for the customer that makes them want to feel like they come back. And I won't mention any names, but certainly since I've spent a lot of time in Canterbury where you're, you're based, there was a very popular pub there. And every time I'd go in, which was probably every two weeks or so, there'd just be different staff there. And mm. um, I don't think it was a coincidence. I think it was because uh, the owner was probably very uh, cruel in many ways and viewed the employees as basically as objects uh, to, to, to run the business. And um, I finally made a decision to stop going to that pub because uh, I just, I had to go back to philosophical terms. I had the belief that this was the case that he was treating uh, employees uh, poorly. I had a great credence in that belief and decided to commit to it, not, not go back to that pub. So maybe I should visit the UK a few more times and um, come visit your pub and see the transformation of Sam Holden into capitalist mogul. We'll see. Yeah. Um. Hopefully, your experience experience in poker will uh, have cultivated some virtues to prevent that. But uh, I was wondering if you've noticed in looking back at professional poker playing when you did it and as it is today, and I'm thinking about this as as a mirror to hold up as you make your transition to being a publican of the Monument Pub. If there's certain things you you remember seeing as being quite virtuous when you were playing poker, and then when you look at poker playing today, how the landscape has changed, that um, I know you mentioned a lot of poker players or a lot of people who are doing online gambling want the quick hit type of thing. Is it is that kind of change something you've noticed, or is that is that me trying uh, to push you into a naive position? Well, it's a change I've noticed in terms of the games that the poker sites are running specifically. Yeah, I mean that that's a comment really on 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 the sites, and ultimately it's because they're trying to trying to make more money, of course. But it would be difficult to comment on like what effect that has on the players because I don't really meet people that play these kind of gambly versions of poker that take five minutes. Um, or if they do, then they're doing it from a very kind of like professional standpoint. Um, rather than you know trying to hit the jackpot which is the kind of the way that they're set up i imagine it's still the same i I don't know i'm a bit out of touch with the poker community now but like i touched on it earlier there's a just part to poker where you would turn where people would turn up and typically they were kind of really wealthy um almost always men uh who would buy into this big tournament rather than qualify or rather than sell kind of shares, which is what professional players would do. Um, and um, they just thought, you know, just huge ego and they'd try and push people around. And um, it's so nice just to sit there quietly and just know that um, that's not going to work here. Like it might work in other places, but it's not going to work on a focus table. Um, they're usually so bad that like they were, um, what we would say drawing pretty dead in, in a in a poker tournament and um, a little anecdote of uh, I was in Australia playing and two of these guys sat down on my table and you can spot them a mile off one of them put their keys on the table not in a kind of not to gamble with the car but just like to get it out of their pocket and it was a Ferrari key and then the other one pulls their key out and goes oh which Ferrari have you got mate and like they were having a big kind of whose Ferrari's better than whose kind of thing. Yeah, they didn't last very long in the tournament. But, uh... <laughs> that all goes back to the whole creation of the world of meaning that, that uh, we talked about earlier. 
I played poker with sure. Cam Holden. He, yeah, he beat me, but <laughs> I had him worried for a while. <laughs> I'm sure they thought they were very unlucky. And also another kind of just part of that, um, again, like men like that would push um, female players around on the table, women who have got particularly good at poker. You know, they were just always trying to bluff them, basically. So people like Victoria Cora Mitchell in, in the UK and um, there's like Jen Harmon in America and Liv Bury in the UK as well. Um, I imagine, I haven't spoken directly about this, but I can only imagine that they just became very, very good at just extracting um, chips from the, the, these like huge egos. I always found that very beautiful. <laughs> Sam, has there been any one philosophy, idea or philosopher that has been inspirational or motivational for you? I think I'd have to go back to existentialism again. And, 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 you know, for me, like kind of coming to terms with the world as it is, was just, just huge. And also I think having, you know, done an undergraduate module in, in, in existentialism came to realize how, quite how varied it was. And there are theist and atheist um, ideas within existentialism. I do think there's something for everyone and people's twenties can be, pretty hard time to kind of maybe come out of university and, and come to terms with the world. I was studying philosophy a bit later than most, but um, yeah, I just recommend for everyone to read some existentialism or listen to a podcast or listen to <laughs> several podcasts or YouTube videos or whatever, you know, um, particularly if you're feeling out of place somehow in the world. As we draw this podcast to a close, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience members? I do, I'm saying this in a tongue-in-cheek way, but, you know, I do think knowledge is overrated and looking for certainty in an uncertain world is going to take a lot of time and effort and energy and um, just try and try and make decisions as, as best as you can and and, and realise that there's a lot of things that are out of, out of your control and also realise that there's things that are out of other people's control and put that down to luck, you know, having focused on luck for so many years and thought about it it became natural for me to to be able to <laughs> to kind of put things down to it being out of my control and therefore just accepting it which was yeah a really nice kind of kind of schooling in that kind of thought i suppose i think what i'm trying to say is just kind of give yourself a break sometimes you know sometimes it, <laughs> it might just be unlucky sam holden thank you for being a guest on living philosophy and i wish you all the luck in the Monument Pub, and I hope to visit sometime in the near future to try the food and good whiskey. Thank you very much, Todd. Yeah, I can promise that. If you would like to know more about Sam's Pub, The Monument, or even have a visit for an opportunity to partake in good food, drink, and conversation, please keep an eye out for an updated website. Sam hopes to get moving quickly on his grand opening once the pandemic conditions ease. And perhaps, with some luck, that will be much sooner than we might expect. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share and subscribe. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.